John chapter 7. You know, it's bad when you get lost in your own Bible. John chapter 7, verses 37, 38, and 39. You know, when I was laying this out, I mean, I knew before I started doing any work on this that these three verses were mountainously, gargantuanly big verses. But there was still this moment of hesitancy. Do I really want to have a whole sermon just on three verses? And by the time I was done with all this, it's like, how am I going to do it? I like, I need three sermons, one for each verse. This is just massive. The things that aren't said that are assumed by John because he's writing to people who understand this are overwhelming. And then once we start to grasp everything that it means, all the implications of it are equally massive and I wished I could have just like sucked all of y'all into my brain this week to see the things I saw because I had to leave out so much let's just read this and start on the last day of the feast the great day Jesus stood up and cried out if anyone thirst let him come to me and drink Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Oh, Lord, thank you for the precious gift of these words, as well as the gift of the spirit. Oh, Lord, we pray and we ask that you would so distill within us our understanding of you, our trust in you, our joy in you, that we glorify your name and that this place becomes a place that is the fountainhead of living waters flowing from within this building because it's flowing from within each of us into the streets around us, flowing downward into the city of Castle Rock and bringing life where there is no life, bringing hope where there is no hope. And we pray, Lord, that you would start with this whole springing of water today here in this room with us. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, so understanding these verses, you know, when Jesus says, out of the heart will flow rivers of living water, we have to even go back to the beginning of understanding what the Feast of Tabernacles was about. And not just the great day of this last day of the feast itself, but the whole feast itself. Remembering that Sukkot is the Hebrew word, meaning booze, it's sometimes called the Feast of Sukkot and Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booze. They're all different ways of saying the same thing. It was to commemorate the time that the people lived in these temporary shelters while wandering around in the wilderness during Moses' time. But it also reminded them of God's provision and care by him as well as his dwelling with them. That's one of the things that's so hard for us to remember a lot of times 
when we talk about the wilderness wanderings and that time in the, between Moses taking them out of Egypt and then entering in the promised land with Joshua was God dwelt with them. And remembering that he still dwells with them was part of the Feast of Tabernacles, that the temple was there to remind them and the celebrations in the temple was there to remind them that this is all a part of remembering that he dwells with us. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of the four feasts that all males were required to come to each year to attend in the city of Jerusalem. And it was the last feast of the year and it occurred right at the end of harvest period so there was just this natural element of joy built into it. But despite that natural element of joy built into it because it was the end of the harvest period and they had all the stuff, right, that you get, you know, the joys of the harvest, God had commanded them to be joyful during this feast. Other feasts, there was some elements of confession and repentance, but for the Feast of Tabernacles, he commanded them to be joyful. And they did. The joy they expressed and the things they did during this festival are amazing. I mean, it's like Mardi Gras, but with a holiness attached to it. That's how much joy and fun they had at the Feast of Tabernacles. The other part about this is that like every festival and cultural event, it evolves over the course of time and other things change to it and become added to it. And as a result of the way the natural cycle of life occurred in Israel, this was the end of the dry season as well as the end of the harvest period. And now that they'd harvested all the foods from all the crops, they were ready for the rainy seasons to begin. And oftentimes the rainy season began immediately after the Feast of Tabernacle with the rains coming after months of not having rain. And so part of the Feast of Tabernacles was this recognition that now it's been very dry and we're looking to God the Father for this provision of rain, the provision of life-giving water through the return of the rainy season and that he's the one who sends it. And we're going to celebrate the harvest and turn towards him and ask for him to send the rains, to send the water to fall. And connected with this idea of giving physical life through the giving of physical water in the form of rain, the Feast of Tabernacles also asked for God to send the Holy Spirit symbolized in the life-giving water. So they were actually carrying out very particular rituals within the Feast of Tabernacles that was designed to ask God to send physical life-giving water and at the same time send the life-giving water of the Holy Spirit. And one of the most critical rituals of the Feast of Tabernacles, one that recognized and illustrated both of those needs for physical water and spiritual water, was what's called the water ceremony or the water libation ceremony. And this is what's being talked about in verse 37. Now, the water ceremony, it occurred every day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It wasn't just on the great day, but on the last day of the feast, the great day, it took on extra meaning and it took on extra exuberance even. It's like they had a lot of fun and a lot of praise and worship during the previous six days, but on that seventh day, they really cranked it up a couple of notches. They probably brought out the timpanis for that day 
They definitely brought out the 100-watt amps for the guitars. There's no question about that. And so this water ceremony that occurred every day but took on extra significance on the last day, the seventh day, in keeping with the command to be joyful during the feast and the importance of asking God to send the Holy Spirit, this tradition developed, it really kind of developed in the later temple period, like after Zechariah and Malachi, after that period of the Old Testament, when it comes to an end, so kind of in between the intertestament period, would we would say would be when this really developed. It's not something that was commanded in Scripture, but it was certainly the elements of it were there, and the heart of it was there in Scripture, and it fit and was great portion of celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, even though it wasn't proclaimed and given as prescribed by God as an activity, like all the other elements of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so by the time Jesus arrives, this water ceremony is firmly engraved in the practices of the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was a ritual that was built off of Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. I'll just quickly read chapter 12 to you. It's only six verses long. Probably the shortest, has to be the shortest chapter in the entire book of Isaiah. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw waters from the well of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. That passage by itself is just dripping with Jesus. That the Holy One of Israel is in their midst. Okay, John chapter 7 verse 37. The Holy One of Israel is literally in their midst as they're celebrating this ceremony of this passage of Isaiah. And the well of salvation is standing there in the temple. It is just like, what would, what would it, oh, what would it have been like to be there that day? To watch this. But as, before we can even go there to what it would have been like to sit there or stand there in the temple with Jesus, we have to understand the entire water drawing ceremony. We have to start with the whole background of the ceremony, which begins with Ezekiel chapter 47. If you have your Bibles, turn back to Ezekiel chapter 47. And I didn't pre-mark it so that I wouldn't get there too quick. You would have time to find Ezekiel chapter 47. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. But I am going to read verses 1 through 12. And then we have to jump to Zechariah chapter 14. So Ezekiel chapter 47, the first 12 verses. Then he, the angel of the Lord, 
brought me, Ezekiel, back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. That would be like going out towards the Mount of Olives from the temple. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Okay, it comes out of the temple proper and then starts to turn southward at the altar itself. Think about the imagery here. It comes out of the temple at the altar. It turns and starts going southward out the bottom south end of the temple mount towards the city of David. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits. That's a little over a quarter of a mile. And then led me to the water and it was ankle deep. Okay, so at the gates of the temple, it's just trickling out. A quarter of a mile later, it's ankle deep. Wait. How does that happen? How does that work? How does, how did, without another source of water feeding into it, how does it get thicker and deeper? Then he led me through the water and it was ankle deep. And again, he measured a thousand cubits, another quarter mile. So now we're a half mile from the temple and led me through the water and it's knee deep. And he measured a thousand, which now we're three quarters of a mile and led me through the water and it was waist deep. And he measured a thousand. So now we're a full mile from the temple. And it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen and it was deep enough to swim in. A river that could not be passed through or you know, crossed. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. And as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah and it enters the sea, which is the Dead Sea. And when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Engilam, and it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be very many kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea, meaning the Mediterranean. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Do you get the picture? Trees are growing along the bank. These trees bear fruit for food, for sustenance, and the leaves have medicinal properties within them for healing of the body. And if this sounds familiar, it should. This is the same language from Revelation chapter 21. 
John didn't come up with this idea when he wrote the book of Revelation and saw in his vision the river with 12 kinds of trees for the healings of the nations. It was here all along before John ever thought about writing Revelation, before he ever received that vision from the Lord. And let's just be clear here that this sea it's flowing into, the river, it's the Dead Sea. 33% salt content, or is it 23? 23 or 33% salt content. It is off the charts high. It is so high that literally nothing can live in it except this one particular species of bacteria. That's it. Nothing. And when this river hits from the sanctuary, hits the Dead Sea, it becomes fresh water. And fish live in there. And fishermen will stand and fish along from Engedi to Engalam. If you've ever had the joy of going to Israel, you've been by Engedi, even if you didn't get to stop in the Engedi Springs. You will never, I mean, you are joking, Ezekiel. Are you kidding me? This place will never turn into a fishing village, ever. No chance, zero chance. But when this water, this living water, hits the Dead Sea, it becomes like the Mediterranean, flowing with life. But that's not even all. Now we have to go to Zechariah chapter 14. We'll read verses, again, we can't read the whole chapter this morning. We'll just read verses 6 through 11, and then I'll jump over to 16 through 19. So Zechariah chapter 14, starting in verse 6. On that day, there shall be no light, cold or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. And on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, that's the Dead Sea, and half of them to the western sea, that's the Mediterranean. It shall continue in summer as in winter. That's because during the summertime, most of the creeks in Israel dry up in the hot, dry season. But not this one. It'll keep flowing even in the hottest period. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem shall remain aloft on this site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and the tower of Hanil and the king's wine press. And it shall be inhabited for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Those boundaries for is just basically the old city of Jerusalem. It'll still remain elevated. Now verse 16. There's been this great battle that occurs in between verse 12 and verse 16 where the nations gather to war against Israel again this kind of sounds familiar doesn't it and then in verse 16 then everyone who survives means all the Gentiles who survive this great battle of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king the lord of hosts and to keep the feast of booze are the Feast of Tabernacles. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king and the Lord of hosts, 
there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booze. This shall be punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booze. Do you see, at this end of time, this river flows, Ezekiel tells us it flows east into the Dead Sea. A couple hundred years later, Zechariah gets another vision from the Lord and says, actually, it's going in two directions. It's coming out from the temple and going east into the Dead Sea, and it's also going west to the Mediterranean Sea. And it still maintains all of its life-giving properties in both directions. Do you see this sort of heavenly, utopic paradise that it's starting to create in both directions from the temple? And that the temple in old Jerusalem itself stays elevated while the remaining topography flattens out around them. And, oh, it isn't just for Israel. The Jews don't get to keep this to themselves. The Gentiles become part of the kingdom and they are expected to come up and celebrate the Feast of Booze. Remember what's one of the key critical components of celebrating the Feast of Booze? Remembering God dwells with his people. Do you see the connection he's trying? Zechariah is starting to make between the celebration of the Feast of Booze, its symbolism with God dwelling with his people, and now the Gentiles get to enjoy that same indwelling presence of God. And all that is just the background to the water ceremony itself. We haven't even got to the event at this point. So starting at the temple, the high priest would take this golden flask and the Levites would blow the shofar three times. And after blowing it three times, the high priest would march out of the southern end of the gate, the same one Ezekiel describes where the water's coming out and heading south and then to the east. He would march out of that gate on the south end of the temple with a parade of Levites playing trumpets, flutes, lyres, which the guitar is a descendant of the lute. Lyres are plural for lutes, all singing songs and dancing down the street into the city of David. Remember which direction the river flowed in Ezekiel's vision? It flowed into the city of David. It flowed down this main street that had a name I forgot. And that was the one they marched down through the city of David. They would make their way to the pool of Siloam at the very southern tip of the city of David which also symbolized the source of the Holy Spirit. If you remember, the Pool of Siloam was fed by the Gihon Spring through Hezekiah's tunnel that he built when he was king. This was also an allusion to the water that sprang from the rock in the wilderness provided by the people that provided the people with water in Exodus chapter 17 and Numbers chapter 20. When they were thirsty in a dry land and Moses strikes the rock and water comes from the rock, to give the people something to drink with water to drink and their livestock. Then once they get to the pool of Shalom, the high priest would dip the golden flask down into the pool of Shalom and draw out the water. And somewhere in this process, they would all recite 
Isaiah chapter 3, verse chapter 12, verse 3. Then they would return back to the temple following the same route that they took. And because of the topography of Jerusalem, the procession descended from the temple to the pool of Shalom. And then once he had filled the golden flask with water, they would climb the hill back to the temple, ascending from the city of David to the temple mount. And as they returned, they just continued singing with all these musical instruments, trumpets, flutes, harps, lyres, and this large procession of people singing. And they were probably singing the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 through 134 on their return. And where they sang them is a little tricky to determine because there are 15 Psalms of Ascents, 120 through 134. One for each of the 15 steps that led from the court of women to the court of men in the temple where ultimately the altar was. Yet the Psalm of Ascents were commonly sung as pilgrims approached Jerusalem on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for any festival or feast. As they got closer, they would start singing those 15 psalms of ascents as sort of pre-worship songs, right? Like you listen to worship music in the car on the way here. That was kind of their version of getting music in the car on their way to church as they were approaching Jerusalem. So as a result, they didn't have to be limited to just singing the psalms of ascents on the steps in the temple. And once they returned to the temple, the high priest would enter in through that same gate that he exited and climb up into the open area of the temple of the court of Gentiles. There he would be met by another priest who held a separate golden flask with wine in it. You have one priest holding a golden flask with water from the pool of Shalom and another one holding a golden flask filled with wine. And then together they marched side by side through the court of Gentiles into the court of women and all the while the crowd was singing and dancing with music from the Levites. Remember, while there's this big long parade going down to the Pool of Shalom and back, there's a whole great bigger crowd still standing in the temples who stayed behind and they're having their own separate worship service with musical instruments and singing and praising separate from the one that the parade is having as it goes down into the city of Jerusalem and back up. Then, once the procession makes its way back into the Temple Mount, they all are celebrating and singing together. And then as the two priests approach the steps leading up from the court of women into the court of men, they would all sing the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 through 118. Another set of Levites, besides those in the processions, were standing on those 15 steps leading up from the court of women into the court of men, with musical instruments playing music in addition to the ones in the procession. Do you start to understand why I said this is Mardi Gras with a holy set to it? It's just huge, and it's nothing but joyous. And Okay, this is the part where it becomes uncomfortable for us. Singing, multiple musical instruments, celebration, we're all good. But then they were dancing. They were dancing in the temple. I don't know what to do with that. It's in scripture. and Apparently it was something they were supposed to do. So I don't know what we're going to do with that. But 
We'll figure that out another day. Then the high priest and the second priest, the one with the wine flask, they would walk up a ramp leading to the altar. There they stood in front of two separate basins on the altar. And the two basins funneled the contents within the basins down into the bottom of the burning altar itself. These were used for drink offerings. When they would pour out the drink offerings, I often wondered, the altar's big. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like that section here in the middle. The whole thing is that big. And it's got whole cow on it burning. And a couple of lambs or a couple of sheep and goats with the cow burning. I mean, it's, it's huge and the fire is big. And if you've ever been around a big fire, you know it's hard to get close to it. So I've often wondered how in the world did the priest ever get close enough to pour the drink offerings onto the altar, right? Well, being the good, smart Jews that they were, they figured out this funneling system where they could stand back, pour into these basins, and it would funnel itself down into there. And so then simultaneously, the two priests would pour the water and the wine out of their flask into the basins, which would then flow into the altar, mingling together as a single drink offering to the Lord. The water and the wine mingling together as a single offering. And after the pouring out of the water and the wine, there was this period of silence. This moment of silence was for listening for the wind. Does that sound familiar? Because the wind was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. This loud, boisterous crowd with an entire orchestra of musical instruments for worship got quiet. The entire Temple Mount was silent, listening for the wind as an example and a symbol of God granting their request of sending the Holy Spirit. And as well as that listening for the wind, there was this, there was a time to reflect on the significance of the water ceremony and their desire for water that only God could give through the Holy Spirit. And only God's Holy Spirit symbolized by the water could satisfy their thirsty souls. Now, of course, John doesn't say this, but there is no small amount of speculation that it was in this moment of silence. Right, everybody's, we've had this big party, but now we're all going to be quiet and listen for the Holy Spirit. That in that moment of silence, Jesus cries out in a very loud voice, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his hearts will flow rivers of living water. The first thing that struck me when I read that, man, Jesus had some big kahunas to stand up in the middle of that moment when everybody's quiet because we're waiting to hear from the Holy Spirit and he speaks out in a loud voice. I mean, it kind of sounds like everybody in the temple mount heard him. The court of Gentiles, the women, the men, the priest on the inside of the temple, holy of holies, our holy place. Everybody heard him. You're going to stand up. Okay. I mean, 
I can imagine Peter and Andrew and John and James. What what are you doing? Not now. This is not the time. They just tried to kill us yesterday. Not now. And he just blurts it out anyway. They're waiting to hear from the Holy Spirit, hoping to receive the life-giving waters of the Spirit. And Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Okay, if you're not the Messiah, if you're not really that guy, and you say that in that moment, you're a lunatic. He's making it explicit to everyone in the temple. I am that rock. I am that desire. I am where the water comes from. And all you got to do is come over here to me. And of course, John makes it explicit for us that this is the Holy Spirit he was referring to when Jesus says rivers of living water, the plain point of the Spirit indwelling within is where the water comes from. Now, we cannot possibly comprehend this statement of rivers of living water flowing out from within us apart from everything I've tried to explain to you about the river water flowing from God's temple and the water ceremony and seeking God's Spirit poured out on His people. But just look at the implications of all this once we start to grasp it. First, the flowing, life-giving water is from God and its origins within the temple in Ezekiel and Zechariah make this plain. There is no self-help. I'm going to make myself into a river of living water that nourishes those around me. No, it only comes from God. God gives it to his people and it creates life wherever it goes. Even in the desert, the deadest place on the earth, the Dead Sea. Even there, it creates life. And because this flowing river must originate in the temple, by it flowing from within us, we are the new temple. I want you to... We all understand this idea, oh, we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Look, you're a temple for the Holy Spirit, so life-giving water can flow out of you into the world around you. And the outflow of the Holy Spirit should not only enrich and flourish our lives, but the implication from all this is that also it should nourish and enrich the lives of those who we come in contact with, as described in Ezekiel. We are to be a source of life-giving. Of course, we're not really the source. We're just the conduit. We're just the riverbed that life-giving water flows through. And this kind of life-giving that emanates from us is fruit-bearing and healing. The words of our mouth and the actions of our fingers should result in the bearing of fruit for the kingdom and the healing of those who need healing. Okay, so what? This is great, wonderful. Love this insight into Hebrew tradition and Second Temple practices and just how you know brave Jesus was to stand up and say something like this in the middle of that moment. But so what? 
I'm feeling pretty dry. So what? Jesus purchased our river of living water through his blood. And without the blood of Jesus, there can be no life. In essence, the life-giving water that emanates from us really is his blood. And if you've never placed your faith in Christ, work on the cross, or been washed by his blood, today is the day for you to draw water from the salvation of the fount of Calvary. And for those of us who've received rivers of living water, glorify Jesus in your words and your deeds. Be life givers. Give life. The other thing is we need to recognize that we have a type of booze too. Remember the idea of the the Feast of Booze was we remember God dwelling with us, we remember his provisions, but we remember that they remember that they were spending time in these temporary shelters as they passed through the wilderness. Metaphorically and spiritually, we are delivered out of slavery when Christ redeems us at salvation. Then we soldiering through the wilderness of this fallen world, living in our booths of these fallen mortal bodies until we cross into the promised land at our death. This flesh and bone that we live in is a booth. It's just a temporary shelter until we cross into the promised land. Yes, we'll get another one that's better. That'll be our permanent, well, I can't call it a booth, our permanent dwelling, physical permanent dwelling. But for now, we have this booth, and booths weren't made to last forever. They were meant to last for a season and then they are taken apart and because we have experienced what the feast of tabernacle pilgrims longed for we should live in joy equal to what they expressed that day we enjoy the indwelling presence of the holy spirit they had no idea what that was like they yearned and hoped for it they some of them and some of them kind did get to experience it because they put their faith in Jesus, as John says in the next section. But a lot of them never did. They never, they longed for this thing, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to be given as they longed for and practiced in the, in the Feast of Tabernacles and the water ceremony, but they never got it. And we do, we have it enjoy it, and live in joy equal to what they expressed that day. So that's what we're going to do. Okay, I've done everything I can to create a place and a moment where you can enjoy it with that kind of joy that they exuberated that day. And I'm going to do it, and I'm hoping that you can too. And what we're going to start, we're not going to start by going to come thou fount of every blessing. We're going to start by listening to someone read us the Halils, Psalms 113 through 118. And as you listen to them, listen to them with three things in your mind. Listen, yeah, read them. You can look at them, read along with them, with the reader. Okay, what I want you to do is remember these three things while we're reading them. Number one, the Halils talk about Jesus, if you're willing to listen and see them. Where does it talk about him? And remember, when it does talk about him, they were literally singing it. 
while he was standing there in front of them. Put yourself in those. Secondly, remember that they're singing it. It's a joyful, exuberant celebration and praise. And then thirdly, try to imagine yourself in that kind of joy as you listen to the Halils. And then once we get to the end of Psalm 118, then we will sing, brothers and sisters, and we will sing with joy.